Good morning, church. <clears throat> oh, deep breath. Does anybody want to come do this for me? Anybody? Any takers? No? Okay. All right. Well, if those verses didn't get you sitting up straight and get your attention, I'm not sure what will. <clears throat> Message this morning should probably get, begin with a bit of a of a disclaimer that this this is rated PG thirteen. So some of your parents may be a little worried here. All you teenagers are up up there like yes. <laughs> We're concluding a series um, that we've been journeying through over the last number of weeks called Enemies of the Heart, where uh, we've been looking at. Um, some common heart sicknesses that we experience as human beings and, uh, and discovering how the gospel of Jesus, uh, when it's believed and embraced, heals our hearts from these sicknesses and frees us from their damage. And uh, I was initially gonna end last week and I debated, am, am I gonna add a week here and speak on lust? And... Uh, I thought, I'm sure nobody here has an issue with that. Um, But I'm going to do it anyway uh, because I suspect that that's not true. I suspect that this is a very relevant concern for many of us. One thing I've discovered um, over the years is that, uh, well, we all know our world is dripping with lust, right? One thing I've discovered though is it's not a male problem, it's not a young person problem, it's not a single person problem. It really is a human problem. Uh, I was shocked at this when I was uh, a young man, back when I was young, you know. In my teens, when I would walk into, uh, you know, the corner store there, and, and in the back, dark corner, they had the magazine rack, and that's back when you actually had to seek out pornography had to go somewhere else and I I remember being so surprised when I saw old men handling these magazines I thought ew old men they're not into that apparently that's not true in fact um, statistics show that men aged 45 to 54 um, are more apt to use pornography than men ages 25 to 34 isn't interesting all that to explode any sort of myth that might be out there that lust is uh, an age thing. Because it, it really isn't. It's not a gender thing either. The forms lust may take may be a little bit different based on the gender, but it's not a male problem. It's not a single problem. Your relationship status doesn't determine whether you struggle with lust or not. I, I, I was so shocked about this when I was, um, when I entered into marriage. And I thought, well, here is the solution to my problem, marriage. Soon as you young people up there thinking the cure to this is, is, is just getting hitched, um, you're in for a rude surprise. It doesn't work that way. It's a heart disease. Marriage doesn't heal the heart. So don't just think, you know what, yeah, it's something I'm, dealing with now, but someday, you know, when I'm happily married, won't have to worry about this. Not true, not true. 
People struggle with it uh, regardless of religious affiliation, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Some pretty interesting statistics I came across. Uh, The percentage of Christian households who said that pornography was a major problem in their home, 47%, 47%. Now, of course, uh, lust is is, is far bigger than than pornography, but these are some telling statistics. Promise keepers, uh, promise keeper men, it's a Christian ministry for men. Uh, Those men uh, surveyed who viewed pornography in the last week, 53%. Pastors who have viewed pornography in the last year, 33%. You got Rusty, John, and Andrew. One out of three. (laughs) John, Andrew, it's not me, John, Andrew. (laughs) Anyway, not here, not us, right? Uh, I wanted to preach about it because, hey, listen, this is, our world is saturated in this stuff. Our hearts can be saturated with it. Let's talk about it. Jesus did. He didn't shy away from this stuff. He faced it head on. Paul faced it head on in the church. We need to face this head on as well. So what is lust? What is lust? Well, if you want to find the definitive answer to a question like that, you turn to the... Is that Bible? No, the internet. The internet, right? I Googled lust. Oh, no, sorry, I didn't Google lust. Don't Google lust. <laughs> don't, don't Google lust. <laughs> no. I Googled the definition of lust. <laughs> and the first definition that came up I thought was interesting. It just said this. Lust is a strong or unbridled sexual desire. A strong or unbridled sexual desire. I thought that was peculiar because really I believe those are two separate things a strong sexual desire and an unbridled sexual desire you're you're never going to overcome lust if you think those are one and the same because they're not those are two totally separate things we see that even in the way Jesus uses the word lust It's a word that doesn't just talk about sexual desire or excessive, unbridled, uncontrolled sexual desire. It's just kind of a generic word for a a deep longing. In fact, it's not a word that's a negative word. It can be negative or positive depending on the circumstances. So Jesus used the very word for himself. In uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 15, when he said to his disciples, I have longed to eat this Passover with you. It's the same word here for lust. I've longed to eat this past, so it talks about deep longing, okay? And so, it's not inherently good or bad, it's kind of a neutral term, and whether it's positive or negative kind of depends on the context and how the longing is being satisfied or directed. And and so in that reason, the issue of lust is a little bit different than the other emotions we've looked at over the last few weeks. Uh, guilt, jealousy, anger, greed. Um, God didn't create any of those. God created lust. And he declared it good. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, he makes a man. And then he makes a woman. And what does the man say about the woman? He sings, what does he do? He sings a song. 
what does it say? Something about she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I call her woman. You know, like that's just a, that's just like a really uh, formal way of saying, "Whoa, I like what I see." It's a song about sexual desire. Okay. So at the very beginning of the Bible, what you have is you have a naked man singing rapturously over a naked woman in the presence of God. How cool is the Bible? There it is. Sexual desire made by God, given to man as a gift, called good, even before sin entered the world. I mean, that other stuff we've dealt with, guilt, jealousy, greed, anger, that all entered the world after the fall, but not lust. It's already there, made by God. All that to say, we need to dispel, maybe none of you here have that notion that somehow the Bible is kind of suppressed and repressed sexually. And Christians are as well. Well, they ought not to be. The Bible isn't anti-sex. God isn't anti-sex. It was his idea, right? Okay. In other words, this desire, this, this lust, the word he uses, this longing Jesus talks about, this appetite is not a problem to solve. It's not like anger, a problem to solve. It's not like greed, a problem to solve. It's an appetite to manage. It's an appetite that we need to manage. And so in our few minutes together, <clears throat> um, I want to explore how we do that. How we do that. So that strong sexual desire doesn't become unbridled sexual desire. Two things we need to know, two things we need to do. The first thing we need to know is we really need to know God's design for sex. If you're gonna know the difference between strong sexual desire and unbridled sexual desire, the only way you're gonna know the difference between the two is to know God's design for the desire, God's design for sex. It shouldn't surprise us that God has a design for it. God made it. Usually makers have some instruction, some design to how to use or operate that which they have made, right? When you bought a car, it came with a manual that told you how to properly operate the car so that you didn't destroy your car. And what did you say? Gasoline? I'm gonna put in diesel. You're not telling me what to do. Did you do that? Okay, you made the car. How do we operate this car so that I get the best performance out of this car so I can enjoy this car to the maximum? And so the creator gives you some instruction there to get the most out of it. God is no different. He has a design for that which he has made and Jesus talks about this design. Matthew 5 verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard it said, and now he's gonna quote the Old Testament. This is one of the 10 commands. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. So what Jesus, and then he goes on to say, but, but I tell you, now he's not rejecting that, of course. He's accepting it and he's gonna build on it. He's gonna build on the Old Testament teaching of sexuality. And what is that, 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 that sexual ethic that we are given here? It's that uh, sex is only within covenant. Sex is only within a covenant relationship. That's kind of one of those old-fashioned words. Can you give me a better word for that, a more modern word? No. 
It's not just a word, it's like a whole way of thinking. It's a whole category of thought, a covenant. A covenant is a legal binding relationship whereby you make a promise, an unconditional promise to another where you give your full self to another. And that covenant God calls marriage. He calls marriage. So Jesus is accepting this, this instruction here and saying that sex only within marriage, within the bounds of covenant, one man and one woman, where this appetite can be met. So in other words, lust as, as strong sexual desire is not bad, but the problem is when that becomes unbridled desire. I mean, are any of you horse people? Got some horse people here maybe? Like I think, what's a bridle? Is that the thing in their mouth? Goes around the harness? Okay. Who said you guys could talk? Be quiet. (laughs) I'm kidding. Okay, so I've been told it's something that you use to control the horse. Right? To control the horse. I mean, you can have a strong horse and be a bridled horse. Right? The bridle there is to control. Without the bridle, a horse runs wild. It has no limits. It's uncontrolled. It's uncontained. Jesus says that this appetite, like any appetite, if there are no limits, if it is uncontrolled or uncontained, will become destructive in nature. Like a fire. Like a fire can be good and a fire can be bad. It depends where the fire is and what the fire is doing. If a fire is in a place where it has no limitations, no containment, that's bad. It just keeps going and going and burning and burning until it runs out of stuff to burn. But a fire, if you put it in that place where there's limits, where there's parameters, where it's contained, then fire is, is, is real good. It's, it's life-giving. So God gives, the way he's designed this, he gives parameters for our good. And the parameters are sex within, the co- within covenant, the covenant of marriage. And I know some of you are skeptical about that. There's some of you right now, older people, some younger people are like, yeah, I don't know about that. I get that, I get that. That, what Jesus teaches is totally counter-cultural, totally. It's totally counter-intuitive even. And, and I, I don't wanna say too much because that's a whole nother sermon to unpack why God designs it that way. But it's really counterintuitive because if you would survey the average person out there, and certainly the average young person, the vast majority of young people, and they've done statistics, the vast majority of young people will say that if you cohabitate, which means if you are in a relationship there of a sexual nature outside of covenant, outside of marriage, you are more likely to make a good decision about the person, about marriage, because you'll figure out if you're compatible, right? I mean, that's what you do with a car, right? You take it for a test drive. Do I wanna buy the car? Is the car gonna meet my needs? Am I gonna like the car? Well, what do you do? You take it for a test drive. Who would buy a car without taking it for a test drive? Who would marry someone who taking them for a test drive, right? I mean, it only stands to reason, except that, except that it doesn't work that way because study after study after study, even the most liberal, 
modern newspapers and institutions have found uh, found that that's not true at all. In fact, a recent article by the New York Times titled The Downside of Cohabitation um, found that if people cohabitate, they are far more likely to divorce than those who didn't. Isn't that interesting? That would be like people who test drive the car being far more apt to not like the car and get rid of it than those who... Why? Why? It's because that's a consumer relationship. A car is not like a person. A car is not like a marriage. A car is not like sexual desire. When you buy a car, you're, you want to know, is it going to meet my needs? Is it going to have everything I want to have? And I'm open to an upgrade. I'm going to trade in, in fact. That new model comes out, I'm trading in. Because it's got something else that's even better than what I got. So what is it? That's a consumeristic mindset. What can I get? And so in relationship, we can enter in with that consumeristic uh, mentality it becomes a consumer relationship. I want to see if I can get what I want, and I am totally willing and open for an upgrade if I find one. Right? God's design for sex is not that we would come at it with a consumeristic mentality, but a covenant, covenant. Mentality, And that's another sermon. I'm not going to say any more about that. But all that to say, all that to say, guys and gals, old and young, you know, anytime God gives laws and rules, they're for our good. Did you know that? He's not like some of you monster dads out here whose kid says, but why, dad? And you go, because I said so. Because I'm your dad and I can make whatever rules I want. Right? I mean, I've done that. There's no rhyme or reason. But why, dad? Because I'm dad. I'm going to assert my authority. I'm going to tell you what to do. Don't ask questions. God is a perfect, loving, heavenly. In fact, the word law, we don't like the word law. We don't like the word law. The word law, anytime you have it in in the Bible, is is actually the same word that we have for the, the instruction of a father to a son. So the book of Proverbs, which is written, a father downloading all his collected wisdom to his son. What is that? That's that's the same word. It's law. It's instruction. It's a father saying, I've accumulated all this wisdom and I want you to get the best out of life and I want you to learn so I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give my wisdom to you so you have the best life. So all of God's rules, parameters, guidelines, his design are for our good, including in this area. But the reason I, I, I took a few minutes to talk about God's design is because unless you know where those parameters are, you're never gonna know if, if it's just strong sexual desire, unbridled sexual desire. Jesus goes one step further here though. He says, um, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. He's talking about two bodies coming together in a bed. But he's gonna go one step further. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So he goes beyond outer action and he goes to inner intent. He goes into, into the life of our heart, into the life of our mind, our thought life here. Now, you could read that and you go, oh my goodness. And you could have an awful lot of guilt because you go through life and you go, I, you know, I feel, I'm always feeling attraction. Am I, am I a broken person? I mean, am I violating this absolutely all the time? And Jesus here is making a distinction between strong sexual desire, which is a God-given appetite created for good, and unbridled sexual desire, which is destructive here. Gentlemen, have, maybe your wife has never asked you this question, and if she has, you are a lucky man. But there's two questions, just the worst questions. The first one is, is do I look fat in the dress, right? It's not a good question. I mean, because you always have to say yes, but she'll never believe you. Right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was my mistake. That was my mistake. Oh, Erica, I feel so bad for you now. Wow. I am a monster. <laughs> Guys, can you rewind the tape? Rewind the tape. Rewind the tape. Rewind the tape. Always say no, okay? <laughs> no, no. The other question is, and then, you ever been in this situation? Guys, maybe it's gone the other way as well. You're sitting over coffee, having a nice quiet time, and, and then she asks, she bop, drops that bombshell question on you. Um, so honey, have you ever been attracted to another woman? Now if you're smart, and if you're willing to lie, you'll say no. And if you're really smart, you'll say it right away. Like you won't even let a second lapse because as soon as there's time to ponder, uh, no. Right? If you're smart, you'll just lie. You'll just lie and you'll say no. Uh, what Jesus is, because we know that that's not true. We all know that. That's not true. God has given us this Appetite, this natural God-given appetite, and when we, we can see someone and we can feel an appetite or an attraction or whatever you want to call it. And if you think that's what Jesus is talking about here, you're going to go through life thinking you're totally broken, you'll never be fixed. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's making a distinction between the feeling and then the decision to do something with that. Like Martin Luther uh, famously said in talking about this, he said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. In other words, temptation is not a sin. Desire, it's not a sin. It's what you choose to do with that. It's the decision you make with it that becomes a problem. The problem isn't the appetite, it's how you direct that appetite. In other words, in sinful lust, the lust we are to avoid, to overcome sinful lust is the decision to pursue desire, even if it's just in our heart, just in our mind, the decision to pursue desire outside of God's limits. 
which he has drawn. It's when that feeling becomes, or that first look becomes a second look, right? Or when that feeling, when that picture is seen on, the, on, on, on your screen becomes a click of the mouse, or the decision to think on that and ponder that instead of coming against the thought in your mind, that's, according to Jesus, a problem. So you need to know God's design for sex and you also need to know the superior pleasure of the glory of Jesus Christ if you ever um, will overcome the grip of lust in your life. This is what uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, who do not know God. Apparently he's saying the root of lust is not knowing God. You combat lust by knowing God. What does that mean by knowing God? He's not talking about just head knowledge, right? Like the, like the demon said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know who you are. He said to Jesus, that's not the sort of knowledge, that head knowledge. He's talking about the sort of knowledge that we have in, um, displayed in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 when Paul prays and he says, I, I pray that you might have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's beholding the wonder and the glory of God. The wonder of his love for you. The wonder of his power and his holiness to behold that and, and to really know that in your heart and to be gripped by the beauty, the majesty of God and his grace and his love. Unless your heart is gripped by that, unless you can behold the glory, have that sort of knowledge of God, Paul says, you're like the peg, you don't have a chance in the world. You see this in a telling little story, John chapter four. I think most of you know the story, right? It's Jesus is at a well and he encounters a woman at this well and they're talking a little bit about water. And he says to the woman, he says, everyone who drinks this water, talking about the actual water in the well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, yeah, I'd like some of that. That sounds good, I'd like not to be thirsty. Give me some of that water. And then Jesus does something weird. He starts talking about the woman's sex life. Like, what does this have to do with anything? He, he says, why don't you go and call your husband to come back? And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right. I know you don't have a husband. In fact, I know you've been married and divorced five times. And now you're with a man who's not even your husband. Okay, what, why is Jesus all of a sudden so interested in her sex life? I think it, he's trying to contrast what, what she's doing in her life with what he offers her as living water. He's saying, you know what? He says, look at your own life. 
You've seen how you have this desire, this appetite that you are trying to satisfy, this pleasure that you are pursuing and you can't find it, can you? Husband one, husband two, husband three, husband four, husband five, guy six, how's it going for you? He says, right? It's like you're pursuing and pursuing and as you're trying to fill your appetite, your appetite is only growing and you're finding yourself ever more unsatisfied like someone sitting in a rubber dinghy in the ocean surrounded by water but not a drop of water to drink. And he says, what I have for you is oh so much better, woman. I have water that that, that if you take it in you, you will never thirst again. It will satisfy your soul. That longing of being loved, of being worthy, of being valuable, of being desirable. If you would just Drink the water I give you. If you would have me, who is the living water, you would find that thirst quenched. And that's what lust is. It's this false promise that as I pursue this appetite in this way, I will be satisfied and it never works and it only grows and grows and grows. And this is why Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter um, or at the end of this portion here in Matthew five, he talks about hell, which should I guess scare us a little bit. Because essentially what he seems to be saying is if you don't fight this fight guys, if if you're not gonna fight this, you could actually end up separated from God. You could end up in that place called hell and the word he uses for hell because there's a few different words that are translated hell in the Bible. This one is the word Gehenna, the the word, People knew when when someone said Gehenna, because there was an actual place called Gehenna. Gehenna was the garbage pit outside of Jerusalem. So all the garbage went, and it was burned, and there was a perpetual fire. And so the word Gehenna kind of became a word that described unquenchable thirst, unsatisfied longing, a fire that never went out, that was never quenched. That was Gehenna. And Jesus says, that's hell. Always wanting to be, a thirst that you are trying to quench and never being able to quench it. A longing that you're never able to fulfill. He says, that's hell. And he says, that's lust. He says to this woman, but I am living water and if you take me, you will never thirst again because I will satisfy your deepest longings. In other words here, what I, what I hear Jesus saying and Paul saying is it doesn't work to deny, just to deny a pleasure, to deny your appetite, to either pretend it's not there or to, or to just say no, no, no. You need to replace it. You need to replace it with a superior satisfaction, a superior Pleasure. The only way that you're going to be able to let go of, of this is to get something better. And we know that with kids, if you've ever parented, right, you have a kid that has something they shouldn't have. Maybe my daughter's got a scissor in her hand and you say, give daddy the scissor. And she says, no, I want the scissor. No, give daddy the scissor. No, and then you try to wrestle the scissor from her hands and you're, she's not letting go of that scissor. She wants the scissor. So then you're, you're stupid, so it takes you like half an hour to figure this out. And then, and then you realize, oh, what I need to do is I need to, I need to offer her something that's better than the scissor. So she'll let go of the scissor, right? Oh, want a piece of chocolate? Chocolate? Ch- chocolate? 
Jesus says, it's not about denying a pleasure, denying an appetite, it's about finding the better thing, the better satisfier. Intimacy with God is so much better, Jesus says here. So we have to understand what's at stake. Jesus says, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, sin, cut it off. So I don't want any one-eyed men or women here next week, okay? I don't want you coming back one less eye or one less hand here. Jesus isn't asking you to cut off parts of your body. I don't think, what what he's saying is, guys, be drastic. Do you know what's at stake here? If you keep pursuing that, if you, don't come ac- if you don't come against that unbridled desire, it will destroy you, it will destroy others. Many of you know this. You've been destroyed by it, either by someone else's unbridled sexual desire or by your unbridled sexual desire. You know that destruction. Jesus says, you need to take drastic action against lust. Do whatever it is you need to do. Burn whatever bridge you need to burn. So what do you need to do? What do you need to do to take drastic action in in your own life, to burn whatever bridge there is between you and the object of your lusting, whatever that might be? What do you need to avoid, to cut out? Paul says in Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision. Flee evil desire. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? Unwholesome conversations you gotta remove yourself from. Unhelpful relationships you gotta remove yourself from. A certain TV package you gotta remove yourself from. A certain show you gotta cut out of your life. A certain place you ought not go. What do you need to do? Jesus says do whatever it is that you need to do to come against this so that it will not have you. For me, one of the, the best $18 I spend every month, the best $18 is my Covenant Eyes internet filter. It's on all my, all my computers. It's like, I burnt that bridge because I knew that bridge and I'd cross that bridge. And if that bridge is sitting there, oh, that bridge, burn the bridge. Best $18 I spend every month, my subscription to Covenant Eyes. Men, maybe you need to spend 18 bucks a month. Burn that bridge yourself. Do whatever it is you need to do. Get serious. Separate yourself from that trigger, Jesus says. Take drastic action. So do what you need to do. Cut out, avoid, avoid. And then the last thing I would say here before I close is turn your mind toward Christ. Actually turn your mind and focus on Christ. When, 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 when that when, when lust flares up, when desire flares up, uh, Paul calls these desires deceitful desires. He says they lie to you. You need to say when this comes, you say to yourself, this has been helpful for me, what lie am I tempted to believe right now? What lie am I tempted to believe? That if I do that, that, that would satisfy me? What lie am I being tempted to believe? These desires are deceitful desires. Someone said if the grass looks greener on the other side, it's because you can't see the dog crap from here. Right? Oh, it looks so green. Yeah, get up close. 
Dog crap everywhere. Did he just say crap twice in a sermon? Three times now. Ooh, it's not good. Temptation comes with a lie. It's all a lie. Ask yourself, what lie am I tempted to believe? What trade am I being tempted to make? This has been really helpful for me, guys, the years. Just kind of a bit of a strategy I can use that I can commend to you. What, uh, when, when, the, when there's the temptation to the lust, I ask myself, okay, what am I gonna let go of so that I can hold on to that? What am I gonna let go of? And is it worth the trade? Is it worth the trade? And I always say it's not worth the trade. And I, there's another man who came, he, he thought of it in the same way. I was reading um, a book by this guy uh, who struggled with um, lust, and then he came to the, one of the Beatitudes of Jesus, just a few verses before the verses we're looking at here in, in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's Jesus saying that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This guy wrote, the thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the scary, negative arguments against lust had succeeded in keep, keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing, what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. I was limited, limiting my own intimacy with God. The love he offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it and fully enjoy it. Could he, God that is, in fact substitute another thirst and another hunger for the one I had filled? Would living water somehow quench lust? And the answer, of course, is yes, it will. But you have to ask yourself, what trade am I, what trade am I being, being asked, uh, will I make? Am I being asked to make here? What, what will I give up? Another before I, I'm a few minutes over here before I close. <clears throat> I know that lust doesn't always have an actual object to it. You know, sometimes it's a fantasy in the head. Sometimes it's an actual person with a name, a human being made by God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, after he said that you need to know God to combat lust, he goes on to say, and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So he talks about lust as wronging or taking advantage of a brother or sister. And so something that I, I've, I've tried to practice is any time that, that lust comes my way, I, I, I resolve to pray for that person. Because what is lust? Lust is to objectify and dehumanize. To make an object out of a person. That's what lust is. An object of my desire. You need to rehumanize the object so they're not an object anymore. Pray, pray that they would know the love of Jesus Christ. In closing, I've noticed that I tend to move in the direction of my eye. You ever notice this? You ever stood close to the edge of a cliff and you stare at the edge of the cliff and you go, don't go over that cliff. Now I'm a scaredy cat when it comes to heights, so I stay like way, I don't go, I don't go close to the edge of cliffs. But I look at it and I go, ooh, that's, uh, don't go to the edge of that cliff, don't go to the edge of the cliff, don't go. Isn't it weird? It's like you get drawn. Am I the only one? 
Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. But it's the same thing when you're driving. In fact, somebody who, who, uh, who was here in the first service, he came up to me and said, yeah, I, uh, I was a really bad driver and my driving instructor when I had to get my driver's license again, he said the exact same thing. He said, that's so true. He said, you will move towards what your eyes are on. If you're on the road, and if you, if you look over in the ditch over there, you see something, you see a deer over there, what happens? If there's a, even if you don't want to go that way, if there's a semi-trailer that you're passing slowly and it's like right here and you go, don't hit the semi, don't hit the semi, don't hit the semi, what happens? You don't do this. You normally do this. You normally move in the direction of your eyes. And so it's no good to, to fix your eyes on the problem, on the appetite and say no. No, let go of the scissors. No, don't touch the scissors. Don't touch the scissors. Don't touch the scissors. Because you're focused on the scissors. You'll be drawn to the scissors. Jesus says, turn your eyes. Turn your eyes and turn your mind towards the superior pleasure, to the superior satisfaction that you have in Jesus Christ in that moment. Say no and then turn. to the living water, it's better than chocolate. May our prayer be the prayer of David in Psalm chapter 90, verse 14, when he prayed, Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Why don't you stand with me as I close in prayer? Lord Jesus, you are the living water. You are the satisfier of all our deepest longings. Lord, and if we could just drink you, um, have you, Lord, then we need never be thirsty. We need never be thirsty. So Father, I just pray that whatever our appetites are, Lord, whatever longings there are, whatever maybe lusts that there are in our life, Father, that we would say no and that we would turn to you and that we would find in you um, a superior pleasure and a superior satisfaction that satisfies all the longings of our soul, Father, because we can never be fully happy until we are happy in you. Help us to be happy in you, in Jesus' name, amen.